by their fruits you shall know them. By, 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 by their fruits. All right, welcome to Buy Their Fruits. This is episode 49. 49. I'm with my co-host, uh, John Brisson. How you doing tonight, bud? I'm doing well, Jeremy. It's great to be back, as always. God bless everyone who's listening. Dude, we're on, we're on fire with these getting back into the podcasting, huh? We are, yes. We're setting up for hopefully what will be the 50th show, a, a stra- uh, extravaganza. Yeah, I heard so, you got a little surprise for me. I'm working on it. I'm working on it. I'm working on it. It better pull through, bro. I mean, it's almost Christmas. It is. Hopefully, it'll be before the new year. We'll see. But it will yeah, be. We'll... It will be. And we also will have, supposedly, allegedly, the return of the original co-host by their fruits. Oh, so, Brian. Love them. That's true, yes. That would be fun, man. It really would. But tonight, we have on, we have on Phil Baker. How you doing, Phil? Good, man. Thanks for having me on, fellas. Anytime. I think it was this your second or third time on here. I think so. Yeah. I think so. Yeah, something like that. Um, well, for anybody who doesn't know you, do you want to give a little introduction to yourself, who you are? Uh, definitely throw out some of your books and and plug yourself if you have anything else, you know, where people can find you and all that stuff. Yeah, man. Uh, I've been following Jesus for almost three decades. Uh Husband, father of two kids. My son's 20, daughter's 14, which is a trip, man. Uh, I teach uh, special needs kids. I'm a 12th grade special needs teacher. Uh, so you can pray for me in that regard as well, like just at a, you know, a public school. So uh, it's generally my interactions with the gen ed kids that you, sh- you need to pray for uh, right around lunchtime. When I'm having to protect the bathroom, please pray for me. Um, we'll do. yeah, please. Um, but yeah, other than that, you know, I got some music, um, written some books. I do a podcast with my wife, uh, called reclaiming the faith. You can find all information for all that stuff on, uh, philsbaker.com. Yeah. Uh, okay. So tonight we're going to get into one of your books and that book is, uh, the final or go ahead and say, it. I'll let you do it. Cause you have another book that I want you to plug as well. It's the final abominable temple. And uh, what were the other, this is your third book, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. What What are the other two called? Uh, the previous one was Faithful Witness, the Early Church's Theology of Martyrdom. And the first one was New Wineskins and the Simple Words of Christ. Yeah, man. Both of those had a huge impact on my life. Uh, I appreciate you uh, sending me uh, the, the second one and the first one you sent through PDF, I think. But both of them were brilliant, man. I got your uh, your new book not too long ago through the PDF, but um, I haven't been able to get into it, but it's interesting because of all the events that are kind of popping up right now around Israel and man, just is a whole lot of stuff in the news, a whole lot of implications of what's going on over there. And uh, your book kind of fits into that uh, to a degree. And um, I'm going to read the prologue because your, your book is mainly about the, obviously it's in the title, but it's about the, the third temple. And um, I'm going to read the prologue to your book, 
and then we'll hop right into all the questions. Does that sound good, guys? Sounds, Sounds good to good. me. All right. So the prologue says the earliest Christian document outside of the New Testament is almost certainly the Didache, also known as the Lord's teachings through the 12 apostles to the nations. In the last chapter, the reader is given incredible insight into the eschatological beliefs of the first century. Um, unlike many today, the earliest Christians did not hold the, the belief that it doesn't matter who, what one believes as long as one believes Jesus is coming back. They taught that knowing and watching for the events surrounding the Lord's return could play a crucial role in determining one's eternal destiny. As you read this excerpt from the Didache, note the author's multiple references to the teachings of Jesus and the apostles. And if you don't mind, I'm going to read a part of it. Maybe I'll just read the whole thing and then we'll carry on because this is important. So it says, watch your life. Do not let your lamps burn out nor your waste be unguarded. Uh, be ready, but be ready, for you not know when our Lord is coming, and gather together frequently, seeking that seeking what is necessary for your souls. For all your years of faith will count for nothing unless you are perfected in the last days. In the last days, false prophets and corruptors will multiply, and the sheep will turn into wolves, and love will be turned into hate. As lawlessness increases, men will hate and persecute and betray one another. And then the deceiver of the world will, will appear as a son of God and will do signs and wonders, and the earth will be delivered into his hands. He will commit abominations which have never been since, seen since the world began. Then all mankind will come to the fire of the testing, and many will fall and perish. Many will fa fail and perish. The sheep will turn into wolves. And the deceiver of the world will commit abominations which have never been seen since the beginning of the world. The conjoined ideas of an eschatological apostasy and abomination recall Jesus. Oh, uh, never mind. I, it ends with the parish part. But um, so your book being about the third temple, man, and the implications to the last days and prophecy and all that good stuff. Um john you want to bring up the list of questions that you have for him yeah of course um phil um uh you wrote early in your book about the uh theory uh that god's original temple was um eden and that adam was the uh first uh uh priest of that er earthly uh tabernacle can you can you discuss that a little bit with us yeah sure um so it may not be that Eden is an actual physical temple, but that it functions like one. And one of the main reasons is that the way that Solomon's temple is set up uh, was designed to draw the participants, someone who'd be walking into it, to draw their mind back to Eden. And we'll get back into that. Oh, we can, we can do that right now. So um, this is not like a theory that I came up with. This is just based on research from people a lot smarter than me. Uh, I don't know if y'all have like dictionary of um, Old Testament uh, historical books. This is like InterVarsity Press. This is like InterVarsity Press dictionaries are like just the standard Protestant seminary dictionaries. And so in there you have a long article on Solomon's Temple. So I'll read a little bit from Jay Monson. And he writes about this. For the Israelites, the Temple of Solomon was a return to Eden. 
It brought a piece of paradise to the Israelite homeland that permanently anchored Yahweh not to Sinai, but to Zion. This concept manifested itself in the gourds, leaves, flowers, fruit, and cherubim that decorated the temple, and it animated the ceremonies that took place there. It was an affirmation of the presence, virility, and moral supremacy of Yahweh. In the eyes of the ancient Israelites, therefore, Solomon's temple was an earthly residence for Yahweh, a meeting point between heaven and earth. So that's kind of like what Eden was. It was a meeting point between heaven and earth. So like going back to Genesis, on the sixth day of creation, God dwelt with mankind in a land he called Eden. Within this paradise, there was a garden, which is where the Lord placed Adam and Eve and walked with them. In the midst of the garden, the Lord planted the tree of life and in the, tr in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Excluding the rest of the earth, we can view Eden like this, three concentric circles drawing humanity into increased levels of intimacy with the Lord God. So the closer you get, the closer you get to the pinnacle of Eden, which is probably like a mountain, by the way. So a lot of times temples would be placed on the tops of mountains. Uh, you can see some of that with like Ezekiel 28, by the way. Um, uh, Eden kind of functioned like that. So let's get into um, Adam being like the first priest. So Genesis 2.15 tells us that, that God gave Adam the command to cultivate and keep the garden. The words cultivate, which is abad, and keep, which is shamar, are paired when the Lord instructs Moses concerning the duties of the Levitical priests in the tabernacle. Okay, so same things. So was Eden to be considered as the Lord's original earthly tabernacle? Gordon Wenham writes about this. The Garden of Eden is not viewed by the author of Genesis simply as a piece of Mesopotamian farmland, but as an archetypal sanctuary. That is a place where God dwells and where man should worship him. Many features of the garden may also be found in the tabernacle or Jerusalem temple. And these parallels suggest that the garden itself is to be understood as a sort of sanctuary. I'll just give you one more. Okay, one more little paragraph. This is from the book. If the Garden of Eden was an earthly tabernacle, was Adam essentially a kingly priest of the place where heaven met earth? Well, G.K. Beale believes so, and I'd encourage y'all to check out his book, The Temple and the Church's Mission. G.K. Beale is basically one of the foremost authorities. I'm not trying to appeal to authority, but if you want to see someone who has studied the way the word temple is used throughout the entire Bible, this is the dude, okay? The Temple and the Church's Mission is the book. But he writes, the writer of Genesis 2 was portraying Adam against the later portrait of Israel's priest, priests, and that he was the archetypal priest who served in and guarded or took care of God's first temple. While it is likely that a large part of Adam's task was to cultivate and be a gardener, as well as guarding the garden, that all of his activities are to be understood primarily as priestly activity is suggested not only from the exclusive use of the two words in the context of worship elsewhere, but also because the garden was a sanctuary. So Eden is designed to like, or sorry, Adam is designed to be like the one stewarding the garden. He's, he is the rightful steward. He's kind of functioning like the king and he's also the priest. So he's like a king priest, which is what we come back to 
in Revelation 1, they will be kings and priests upon the earth, the uh, saints of Jesus, the, the believers in Jesus in Revelation 1. And you can see that as well in uh, 1 Peter 2, right? But, and he, and he would effectively be Adam's helpmate yeah. um, in that situation, just like, you know, a wife is a helpmate to their husband. Um, 100%. Um, yeah, uh, it was, you know, I, I, it was very interesting way to start off, um, your book. Um, and I had never had, you know, read anybody and you, you know, you did quote people who, who discussed it. Um, I never had thought of it that way. Um, and, until actually, you know, re, you know, reading you and other people, uh, discuss it in that manner. And I found it very interesting. Um, and then you went on to discuss kind of what led to, the building of the first temple with King Solomon um, and kind of how, uh, which is something I've thought about a lot uh, myself um, in that um, Israel, um, you know, they went through the period uh, of time with the individual judges, right? And they saw the Gentile nations around them having uh, kings. And so they ended up starting to almost idolize those kings making them kind of like kind of like um lionizing their their like mythos uh mm-hmm. you know and wanting to have a king over them and kind of almost in a way rejecting god's kingship not outright but you know to a lesser degree mm-hmm. and so the first king that um they are given uh, is 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 the one that they seem like that they deserve the one that they you know um the one that, the one you know because Saul himself was was kind of at the time early on awkward but charismatic you know kind of look the role of a king right yeah where David was kind of like a homely shepherd uh boy who truly was and there was only a few quote unquote good kings you know throughout listed throughout the bible right you can only Mm -hmm. i can only name four off the top of my head there maybe might be five because you have um man actually maybe less because you have solomon i think solomon repentance anyway the the point is is most of the kings um were wicked uh and we see that a lot today with world you know world leaders you know going astray from god right which is a whole another discussion and then you have the wicked heart of man as well too which would play a role 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 in that um but um a question is something that me and jeremy have always talked about and this is kind of an aside and then we'll go into the first temple we'll go into solomon um is do you believe um that saul went to abraham's bosom uh when he um when he um thrust the sword into himself you know to to kill himself because he was trapped um do you believe that him and and of course jonathan died at the same time too right um do you believe that jonathan went to abraham's bosom do you believe that saul um uh, did uh, uh what what's your thoughts on that and i'll discuss mine it's kind of like an aside that me and me and jeremy discuss about every now and then but i was just curious how you felt about saul though he was a tyrant did he love the lord because we know david was a man um after god's own heart right even though david did you know sins severely with bathsheba and later paid the price 
uh, with the loss of their son, even though Solomon was Bathsheba's and David's, you know, later son. And then Solomon himself, there's an argument of whether he fell away with foreign wives and worshiping foreign gods. But later, if he is the author of Ecclesiastes, he kind of repented and, 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 and you know, and, 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 you know, kind of grew in the Lord and finished, you know, you know, with favor, you know, with God's favor, um, you know, so I guess, where do you stand with Saul and where do you stand with Solomon? I guess and okay. we'll talk about what led to the you know, development of the first temple. Yeah. You know, uh, with David, it's, it's interesting. you like, he breaks commandments six through 10. Mm -hmm. Well, you can make a pretty good argument for that. It's really hard to make an argument that he breaks commandments one through five. I don't know how we would do that. Um, but then you have other Kings that do a good job pretty much in their life. Like somebody like Jehoshaphat. Hezekiah. But, yeah. Um, and, but like with Jehoshaphat, he ends in a bad state. He ends in almost a rebellious state because he's refusing to turn to the Lord, which is interesting. And he's, he's made a covenant with, Ahab, because Jehoshaphat gives his son in marriage to Ahab and Jezebel, which is horrific, right? But Jehoshaphat is basically considered a good king. So what do we do with that? Like, it seems like Jehoshaphat is loyal to the Lord in terms of that is his God. Jehoshaphat does not apostatize at any particular type. Um, like someone like an Ahab completely goes to serve different gods. Yes. But it seems like Ahab repents at the end of his life, which is interesting mm. at the very end. Now, how much is that? He seems very sorry for what he did, <laughs> right? Yeah. Or yeah. you have someone like Manasseh, the most evil king of Judah, who truly repents in his loyalty. And it, it, it appears he, he begins to put away all of the abominable things out of the temple, tries to uh, rid the land of abominable things. So it's, it's hard to know, like, okay, let me just put it out on the table. I, I think salvation then is based on believing in the Abrahamic promise and loyalty to Yahweh. Do you believe in the Abrahamic promise that through his descendants, the Messiah is going to come? If you're believing in that, and I'm basing that on a lot of Paul's writings— through your seed, the nation will be blessed. That thing, Galatians 3 stuff. Okay, so if you're believing in that in the Old Testament and you're loyal to Yahweh, believing loyalty, then I think you're saved. So with that, with Saul, it's hard to know because even in the latter years of his life, he's still swearing by Yahweh. Even when he's like doing bad things, like seeking out the witch, he's still like swearing by Yahweh, which is interesting. So he's practicing witchcraft, but even in that chapter, um, I think it's like 31, 1 Samuel 31 maybe, mm -hmm. um, he had driven out witchcraft from the land. So he's not teaching the people to do witchcraft. He's not telling the people that it's okay, but then in his private, in his time of need, privately he does it, and he does it because he gets impatient with God because God won't answer his request for prayer. So he's turning to God for prayer. He does it in a moment of sin and weakness. Absolutely. But he, is, he did turn to God for prayer first, mm -hmm. which, is, which is good. So I don't know is the short answer with Saul. 
Um, I think he's probably going to be okay, but man, I, it's tough. He should not be your model. No, not at all. <laughs> you know? The only part, yeah, the only right. parts, the only parts yeah. in scripture that I have is when the witch of Endor does summon Samuel. We are led to believe that it is Samuel. Yeah. Right. That it's not a demon. It is Samuel. Okay. Right. Which is one of the only times, you know, within the Bible. And, and I think it was a special case that God allowed this to happen. Right. Yeah. And, and, um, and, and Samuel does say that you and your sons will be with me. Mm -hmm. So we, you know, no one doubts Jonathan, you know, because Jonathan loved David, Jonathan earnestly loved the Lord, you know, so like Jonathan, most people would say, yes, it's likely that he, you know, went to Abraham's bosom, right? So it's likely that he, that, that happened, right? And so it's likely then if Samuel said that, you know, and knew that, you know, both Jonathan and Saul were going to die at the same time and that they both were going to join him, then there's argument there that I would assume that it's likely the case. Um, yeah, but the pushback to that could be, does, does Samuel mean you're going to be with me in the good place? Well, or I would assume says Jonathan. That, or does he assume... just mean that y'all are going to die? Like Samuel yeah. is called an Elohim there. So that's the realm of the dead. That's why he's called an Elohim, because they're just part of the realm of the dead. So is he just saying y'all are about to die because of what you did? Because then they they all die. But I would assume what Jonathan wouldn't have gone to um he wouldn't have gone to Hades. I would assume that he would have been with Samuel in Abraham's bosom. That's what I would assume. I guess I could be wrong. And also one one final thing, when the kingdom's taken from um Saul, okay, when when and Samuel. Mm. Um, you know, when Samuel's having, you know, discussion with with Saul and asking Saul to to repent, um it's it, 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 it if you read it the uh, i think it's first samuel either 14 or 15 i have to go back and look um when you read right, it 14. it says that Saul repents and it's not that god completely takes his favor favor off of him you know he loses the kingship then it's it's done mm -hmm. it's all she, it's all you know it's all that's written there but as far as what i believe to be Saul's salvation Saul earnestly repents there. The Bible records it. Like he's weeping and he's like, okay, because it's the third time, roughly, I think it's the third time uh, during that chain of questioning of back and forth between between uh, uh, Samuel and Saul. And at the very end, Saul, it, it does appear that he earnestly repents and he's like, okay, you know, I, like, and so with, with, with Saul, I would say I'm pretty sure that when Jesus, you know, went to, you know, Abraham's bosom, I'm pretty sure that we're going to see Saul in heaven. Could I be wrong? Maybe. But the way it looks like from Scripture, it does look like it is likely that he will see him in heaven, and it's likely that we'll see Solomon in heaven. I think we're going to see a lot of really, really evil people in heaven. Just Jeffrey Dahmer, that we 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 thought were really heaven. Yeah, the son of Sam, right? David Berkowitz or whatever, like that guy's Jim Simbola, the pastor of Brooklyn Tabernacle Church, I believe. Guy wrote Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire. That guy led David Berkowitz to to mm -hmm. the Lord a long time ago, you know. But like, I, I believe it's in fourteen. I don't remember wherever like 
the the kingdom's taken away from him from Saul mm -hmm. and Solomon's or Saul's like come on let's let's worship God together just come with me follow me let's worship God together he does say that let's do that so the people will see that you're with me and that's an interesting one like is he yeah. doing it because he's right. really repentant or is he doing it to save face right so i don't know man i mean like this stuff is that's crazy. this stuff is really tricky like with solomon also it's tricky i you know we could say like god Sol solomon's going to be saved because he's the son of david and so many promises are are with david we could say maybe it's because he wrote ecclesiastes that he repented at the end but then where do we date ecclesiastes then like does writing scripture guarantee that you're saved in the end that's another question to deal with um and then like the loyalty aspect with solomon um solomon seems to have completely turned away at times now whether he came back i don't know i don't know i don't know if i can make a solid case that solomon repented in his old age when i'm when i'm reading ecclesiastes one of the things that I'm taking from Ecclesiastes is his advice to his sons, which is basically, dude, you guys need to follow your heart because one day you're going to die and face judgment. So to me, it seems like Solomon is very secure in his thinking about his salvation. I think in Ecclesiastes, Solomon thinks he's going to be fine, but that he's going to face judgment for what he did. Okay. Like that's, I'm just kind of getting into a psychological thing. I yeah. think Solomon thinks right. kind of like the way a lot of Christians think, like saved as though through fire, you know, like, a, like personally, like I think I'm going to face judgment. And I think a lot of like my stuff, like first Corinthians three, like some of the wood, hay and straw stuff is going to be burned. We can debate whatever, like, and then like precious metal aspects of my life are going to be purified, but I'm going to have to pass through a quote unquote, like fire of some type. Right. But I'm going to be okay. That's kind of the way I view myself. And I think that's the approach that Solomon's taking about himself. But I don't think someone in his position should be doing that when you're burning your kids alive. And that's after he knew the Lord. For his own happiness, basically, because he's basically yeah. saying in Ecclesiastes, you need to live for your happiness now. I mean, you need to be happy now because you're going to face judgment. He says that several times in the book. Follow so it's your like, heart, do, guys. do what thou will. Almost, almost, yeah. you know, and I, it is kind of interesting to me that there are three times in the Old Testament that 666 is used. One of them is just numbering a part of a tribe and two of them regard Solomon. So when John picks that back up in Revelation yeah. 13, I'm I think personally he's referencing Solomon. I think he's trying to draw his cuz like it's over 90% of Revelation is a call back to the Old Testament. Why would John not do that there? I think he's calling our mind back to Solomon. I think he's telling us that the antichrist is going to the Antichrist was prefigured in Solomon. Because neither now, Solomon nor Saul were mentioned in the Hall of Faith. That's absolutely true. But, you know, there are a lot of they, people but that they, are There are a lot of people that are, though. Yeah. The evidence of absence is in the absence of evidence. But yeah. um, 
you know, it's, I mean, it, but Samson was mentioned, and Samson, you could say, briefly repented before his death, right? Yeah. Which is the reason why he's mentioned. Yeah, absolutely. It's hard with this stuff, man. It's complicated. There's yeah, probably going to be there's probably going to be people who we believe that we were going to see in heaven mm-hmm. that we don't. Mm-hmm. And there's going to be people who we never thought yeah. would be in heaven. Yep. Yeah, it's but by their faith they are. Mm-hmm. So. It's like you just you got your own opinion about it, but at the end of the day you're like I'm not God, I have no idea. Yep. You know. Mm-hmm. And you say that about a lot of people, you know what I mean that we look at like mm-hmm. between, you know, uh John with the whole Jeffrey Dahmer thing, you know what I mean? It's like on one side, I can see where you definitely like, you think he's saved and we're going to see him in heaven. And I'm, and I'm on my, a different side where I'm kind of like, maybe, but I feel like you got to have to be like reprobate to do the things that you, de- you know what I mean? Like, but that's that the glory did. of the parable of the prodigal son, brother. That's the glory of it. No, I understand. But what at the end of the day, what I'm saying is like, I don't know. I have my opinion and I'm not God, but you know, Maybe he is saved. Maybe he's not. I'm not sure. Hopefully he he does get saved because, you know, we were talking about last time on the the last show. Paul, uh, Paul murdered a bunch of Christians. You know what I mean? Like he still did atrocities and he came to, to, to the Lord, too. I mean, the only reason why I have some a different opinion about like somebody like Jeffrey Dahmer is just for the things that he did to his victims type of thing you know what i mean it's not like he just killed them and that was it it was like he ate them he did a whole bunch of different stuff that was just wild so you see what i'm saying like that's i'm not why saying I, it's not i'm not saying it's not difficult it's but difficult I, sure. it, I, I i i'm not saying it's not but i will say that i've listened to the testimony of the preacher i've read his book you know only God knows what we know. What we know is we'll know when we get to heaven whether He's there or not. I'm just saying I would not be surprised, based off of what I've seen, that He'll be there. And if He's there, I'll rejoice. I mean, imagine Paul, you know, going to heaven and Stephen's rejoicing that he's there. I mean, I'm likely sure that probably happened. So, I mean, you know, it's it's difficult because we have kind of like these human emotions and we're like, how could someone as reprobate as Jeffrey Dahmer be saved? And that's the gospel. That someone as lowly as him, the prodigal son, can return and can be redeemed. You know, it's hard for us to wrap our minds around that. But I do believe that there will be people like him that we never thought. But they truly became born again. My mentor and I were talking about Judgment Day, and um, he said that he believes even for Christians, Judgment Day is going to be the worst day for for Christians. For Christians. Let's just do that. For Christians. It's going to be the worst day and the best day ever. Because like like, think about John seeing Jesus in Revelation 1, glorified Jesus, and he's like, oh, crap. Like, I almost cussed. I'm sorry. But like, you know, that's that's yeah. the emotion yeah. right there. Like I'm in so much trouble. Yeah, right. So much strong conviction. Exactly. Because you're encountering so much goodness. Wow. When when you encounter pure goodness, there is a strong conviction of 
I am not. He is, I am not. And right. so once then that goes from the worst day ever to the, but I love you to best day ever, you know, salvation and it's like fullest, you know, like then that's what causes us to look at people like whoever that archetypal figure of worst person who ends up being saved. We're like, yeah, because we know we, we had that, that true, um, experiential Paul, like chief of sinners. Moment. Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's kind of one of those things where like you hear this celebrity come to Christ, like every year there's like a new celebrity, you know what I mean? That's like, is, is all being promoted that he came to Christ kind of like Kanye. And now this, this, this other chick that, uh, I forgot her name, but yeah, that one, you know, it, it's kind of like you see these people and at first you're, well, you, you're really excited for them. You really hope that it's like true and genuine. You know what I mean? Because yeah, we, I mean, for people who look into it, you, you see Kanye's past life and you're like, dang, dude, like you're messed up. And then you hear he comes to Christ. And I'm not going to say that he's a Christian. I'm just going to throw that out there. Uh, we always got to judge them by their fruits, but it's just one of those things that initial reaction when you hear somebody coming to Christ, you know what I mean? You, we, People should rejoice for that because it's surprising for one. And for two, you want to see those types of people who have that much influence make a difference in, in someone's life, you know, and, and for the kingdom of God, that's what you're hoping for, you know. But onto the temple. Onto yes, the on, temple. onto the first temple. Yeah, we're on the first one. Yeah. We did go on an interesting uh, tangent. Hopefully it was edifying to those who are listening. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so, um, can you discuss, you know, Solomon in the, in the building of, of the first temple? What aspect briefly? of that? Um, as far as, um, kind of how it, Israel came together as it being, you know, the first grand tabernacle, it wasn't like the meeting tent that they had, uh, you know, uh, that, that Moses during the time of Moses that they had, you know, uh, to meet to, with the Lord, but it kind of came like the central fo- focal point. Um, and then how it, it very closely, and you talked about this in your book too, how, you know, even during the time of Moses, immediately you had corruption with idol worship, right? So how long did it take as far as the first temple is concerned? And then as far as destruction of the first temple, which eventually led to the second temple, like, you know, this seems to be a reoccurring theme and how can we not think it's going to happen with the abominable third temple, right? Which isn't yeah. even of God. Right. Right. Like Solomon as when he's declared King, uh, there are several things that Deuteronomy, I think it's 17 tells us that Kings are not supposed to do. And within the first couple of chapters in like first Chronicles and, and uh, Kings, like you see Solomon breaking all these things. So it's not good. He's not commanded to build this temple. David asks for this temple to be built and God allows it. Yeah. He says, because like David's his boy, basically, you know, but he's not going to let David build it because David was a man of bloodshed. So he'll let Solomon build it. Um, Solomon turns it into an incredible marvel and, and God blesses it in one sense you see fire come down from heaven you see this incredible display of god's glory 
Um, but then God gives Solomon a very strong warning. And he tells them, like, if 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 you follow me, if you follow my commands, this is going to be an incredible place. My name will be here forever. Sins will be forgiven if you turn to this place, all of that stuff. But if you turn away from me and follow other gods, I'm going to demolish this place. And I'm paraphrasing here, but I'm going to demolish this place and make it a proverb and a byword. Nations are basically, the Gentiles are basically going to make fun of y'all because of what happened here. And, and, and that's what happens, you know, so that's, you know, 950 ish. And then the temple is destroyed 587, I think 586, 587 by uh, Nebuchadnezzar. And when you see the stuff that's going on in the temple, uh, in that first temple, you know, you read specifically Ezekiel chapter uh, eight, and you see him taken further and further in to the temple area. And just, you know, you think this is abominable, you're going to see even more abominable things than this. And it's just horrific stuff. And then right before um, God allows the temple to be destroyed. You see Ezekiel sees the the um, presence of God being taken up away from the temple, and it leaves. The glory of yeah. God departs from the temple, and then God tells um, these angels who have come to like execute judgment on the city of Jerusalem, he tells them to put a mark on the heads of of the people who weep over the sins committed there. Yeah. So they won't be destroyed. So they get, a, I mean, this is obviously like typological stuff to pay attention right. to, you know, they get a mark, these people that are weeping over the sins. So they get spared from these specific types of judgment. And then God tells these angels go and start right at the temple and then go through Jerusalem, slaying everybody. Don't spare man, woman, child, anybody who doesn't have the mark, kill them all and that's what happens um and then I mean, there's even the time period in kings too where um if i remember correctly it's like um i think it's the pentateuch was 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 um not even within the land right and then it was under which king where they found the pentateuch within the temple Right, was it they, Josiah? I think Josiah. Right? Yeah, they found the book of the law. Yep. So that was just showed how far, like during the time of the kings, how far, you know, the Israelites had had come from God to the point at one time where the you know the copy of the book of the law was inside the temple. Right, it wasn't like they were following it at all. They completely had disregarded it, and mm -hmm. so. Um, you know, for God to later destroy it, it had, you know, every, you know, you talk about, you know, the building, I guess not to go too far with, you know, the third temple, you have a lot of Christians, for lack of a better word, and some of them are probably just deceived, donating to the building of the third temple, right? And they use, you know, scripture, you know, if blessed Israel, you'll be blessed, cursed Israel, you'll be cursed. And, you know, my friend uh, Aaron, uh, not Aaron Falkman, but a, a different Aaron, we always discuss, well, what about the numerous, you know, curses that God sets up for Israel in the Old Testament if the uh, Israelites disobey God and are adulterous? Are those still in effect today, too? 
you know? So, I mean, and then we have, you know, New Testament partial blindness, right, as well, too, right? So, again, like, it has to be some sort of nuanced discussion here that just doesn't exist because people want to pick a team or a side at this point. You know yeah. what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah, man. Um, anything in particular in that you wanted me to react to? Uh, no, just in general, of just like just to build upon, like you said, like how far the Israelites during that time period until they were judged um, yeah. were, you know, uh, um, just how far just at building on to that is just how far um, God kept a remnant always. He always has. But it's it's just you see that and then you see them kind of being judged by Nebuchadnezzar uh, and, and the Gentile nations and then through that judgment coming back to God with their tail between their legs leading to the building of the second temple, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Isaiah talks about how the leaders of the people had made a covenant with death. Like God doesn't see us. I mean, that's, that's horrific. And then you see the similar, similar kind of stuff in, in Ezekiel, these guys have completely apostatized and they think either they're either they're doing it so that God doesn't see or that they're doing it because uh, they think God doesn't see. And it's hard to know because of the verbiage, but um, it's just wild. Now, this isn't like you were saying, there, there's a remnant that God always preserves. But yeah, they go, the remnant goes into exile. You got people like Ezekiel, you got people like Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, you know, those, those guys, Daniel. Mm -hmm. They're out there, and then after 70 years, basically, they begin to start, they start coming back, and uh, you have prophets like Haggai and Zechariah, and they start prophesying things that are interesting. They start saying the glory of the second temple, of the new temple that's going to be built, is going to be greater than the glory of the former temple. But this is an issue because there's no Ark of the Covenant anymore. And in fact, Jeremiah prophesied that in chapter 3 of Jeremiah. He said, there's coming a day when no one will miss the Ark of the Covenant. It won't even be there. No one will care about it anymore because of God's presence, which is interesting. But then how could the, how could the second temple, Zerubbabel's temple, be more glorious than Solomon's without the Ark of the Covenant? So you, you start to see this tension in Haggai and particularly Zechariah, that the promises made concerning this rebuilt temple almost cannot be fulfilled by Zerubbabel, Jonathan, and the people. They're too great of promises, but they are fulfilled by Jesus. For instance, like uh, Zechariah 6, there's this, there's this like vision that um jonathan has i think it's jonathan has of uh being a, a crown being put on him but he's the high priest he's not supposed to be a crown yeah. so he's going to be a king priest that's weird but that's a passage psalm 110 you know, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, right? You also have before that, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. You have the king aspect there. The Lord said to my Lord, king, and then you have a priest forever. And the early Christians apply that to Jesus, of course. That is the most quoted psalm by the New Testament authors.
Jesus is the fulfillment of Zechariah 6. It's not Zerubbabel. It's not a combination of Joshua and Zerubbabel. They don't forgive sins. It's Jesus. And I could give you many more examples from Zechariah, but you just see this tension. They, they can't do it. The people can't do it. The leaders can't do it. And in fact, you move forward almost another hundred years, almost, you get to the book of Malachi, and in Malachi, you have the priests doing more abominable things. They're marrying the daughter of a foreign god. Now, what does that mean? Is that literal or is that figurative? Regardless, they have become abominable in God's sight. And God says to them, and it's one of the craziest verses in the Bible, it's in Malachi 2. He says, basically, I'm going to take the dung from your sacrifices and I'm going to rub it in your face. Mm-hmm. It's a wild, That's wild, yeah. It is. That's yeah. crazy. I'm gonna smear poo on your face, fellas, <laughs> because he's basically saying that's what you're doing to my my temple. That's what you're doing yeah. to me and my people. So I'm gonna do it right back to you. Right. Yeah. And then there's all this talk about judgment coming when the Lord appears in His temple. The Lord yeah. Himself is gonna appear in His temple. And it's gonna be fire for y'all. And of course, we see that happen with the Lord appears in His temple as a baby boy right? Jesus does in his temple on the eighth day or whatever. And then the Lord appears again in his temple in John 2. The Lord appears again in his temple in John 7. Then the Lord again appears in his temple later on at the end. And then the Lord appears in his temple when he shows himself in the Holy Spirit inside believers. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of stuff there. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's very powerful and, and I couldn't agree with you, you know, more phil um you know and 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 now uh you know as born again believers the holy spirit uh dwells within us we're temples of the living god um and um you know it did you know of course this the you know jesus uh you know prophesied the destruction of the second temple um it occurred in 72 a.d um there was abominations that were occurring uh you know in that temple uh as well you know temple prostitution uh money changing uh you know of course which jesus did rightfully so is only you know vengeance of the mind say if the lord uh you know chased the money you know changers out of the temple um you know and so you know idolatry was you know practiced there too as well um and you know later it was it was destroyed um and you know, discussion of, you know, the early church and even within the New Testament itself was, um, you know, it was pretty much set in stone that born again believers that the Holy Spirit, you know, resides within them, that they're the temple, that there isn't a, a need for another, you know, physical temple to provide sacrifices to god because jesus christ was the final sacrifice you know you know on the cross uh as the long-awaited messiah he came as a suffering servant he's going to come back as the conquering king um you know and so um but it's, it was still propagated even early back then um by um the jewish people uh that there was the need of another another temple and there was one that was built uh, during the Roman Empire, that it was later destroyed by earthquake, that was you know partially rebuilt during the time of Julian the Apostate, uh, which was later you know destroyed because it wasn't time 
uh, for the abominable third temple to be built yet, but it does look like it will be likely built maybe, maybe not sometime, maybe close in the future, right? Like, so I guess my question to you is, is and yes, I understand <laughs> your thoughts of this or reading, reading the book, but I still, I still want to ask, like, some Christians don't believe that there will be any third temple built at all. Some Christians do believe that there is going to be a third temple. Some people hasten the built of the third temple because they believe that they're going to be raptured out. They believe in a pre-tribulation pre rapture, which I do not hold myself, but they believe they're not going to have to worry about the Antichrist. They're not going to have to worry about the mark of the beast or anything like that. So we might as well, you know, bring like like they could somehow bring Jesus down here quicker to earth, you know, which to me is just I don't I don't I don't see how anybody could read the Bible could think that they can either, you know, as a post-millennialist, hand God the kingdom, or as a you know, pre-tribulation rapture believer. And I have friends who are, but who aren't, at least, you know, they're not supporting the third temple, believe that by hastening the building of the third temple, they can bring Jesus back sooner. Um, and so through your research, where do you stand? Um, and, you know, what would you say to uh, people who do support the third temple being built? Because it is being pushed by, um, you know, heretical, you know, uh, groups like Chabad, for example, that want to rebuild uh, the third temple, whether it's going to be at the Dome of the Rock or it was separate. It was a separate location. The Dome of the Rock is some sort of um obfuscation or whatever but where do, i know it's a lot of questions but where do you stand and all that briefly if you could talk about it yeah um i i think paul is speaking on in two levels basically uh in second thessalonians 2 3 through 4 when he says that the man of lawlessness is going to uh, declare himself god in the temple of god I think in one sense, he is talking about believers by the temple of God, because every time that Paul uses the phrase temple of God, he's not talking about the physical temple in Jerusalem. The phrase temple of God is used nine times in the New Testament, and it's not ever referring to a physical temple in Israel. So I don't think Paul, um, when you read Paul's writings, he's talking about believers being the temple of God because Jesus is the temple of God. So I think he has that in mind, and I think he has this idea of apostasy in mind. And so I think he's saying that believers are going to apostatize, and I think that correlates with, I think he's leaning on Jesus's words, and I think he's leaning on Daniel's words. Now, I, I do think that's that's one level. I think he's also speaking on another level that there is going to be a building that is called the temple of God that the Antichrist is literally going to step foot in because he's trying to convince people that he's the Messiah. Yes. And to do that, he has to step in a building called the temple of God, even though it's not. You know, if you think about the time of, of Jesus, when Jesus is on earth, he is the true nowos of God. He's also the true Israel of God. He's the true servant from Isaiah 49. You are my servant Israel. Okay? Like he 
he is the true Israel. They're not. Uh, he is. And those who Which Chabad tries to say that it's not about. I know. I got it. Yeah, I got it. But you. in the Talmud, I mean, you know, I mean, to bring up the Talmud, they at one time thought it was about a person and not about an individualized nation of people of how the right. Jews, you know, think of it now and majority of being um, them and not of a Messiah. Right. Now, now, then you have uh, the true temple of God standing in a building that's called the temple of God. So that happened. Then you have in Acts, again, the true temple of God being Christians hanging out in a building called the temple of God. While Stephen is saying, God doesn't live in buildings made by hands. Haven't you read Isaiah 66? Right? Like, so Stephen's letting them know. So you can have this stuff going on. And, and I give examples um, I give an example, a few examples of times in Scripture where you see uh, buildings called the Temple of God, or multiple buildings called the Temple of God, or things called the Temple of God, where one is the actual true thing called the Temple of God. Okay, so that's there. There's precedent for that. Um, in terms of supporting, well, let's do hastening. Uh, let's, and and I, I I'm speaking in an overly generalistic way. And so I apologize for any type of straw manning that I'm doing. I don't intend to do that. But um, I know some people who think that we're supposed to financially support the building of a third temple, but they also th think that the rapture can happen imminently, meaning that it can literally happen at any moment. And I would just say that those two thoughts fight against each other. If you think you can hasten the building of the, the hasten the rapture by building the temple, but you also think it can happen at any minute, that's some incongruence of thought. Right. Um, I would also say um, once once Jesus, per particularly once Jesus died and resurrected, and gave his spirit to believers, particularly then, after the once-for-all sacrifice had been made, any building that is claiming to represent Yahweh, um, that is accepting sacrifices for the forgiveness of sins, is by definition blasphemous. So if you are supporting people um, practicing blasphemy, I think you are causing people to stumble. And I don't think that is a wise thing to do in any area of life, yeah. particularly where it regards salvation. If you are leading people to believe that they don't need Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, and you're doing this as a Christian, I think that is, though I don't think people have really thought that through, okay? I think it's an evil thing. Yeah. And I would say the same it's, for John MacArthur telling people, now he may have changed since then, this was many years ago, that you could be saved once you take the mark of the beast. Also, that's evil. a dangerous doctrine too. Yeah. Now he might have changed over the few decades that he said that, but he did at one time say that, uh, which would go into Calvinism if you're a member of the elect. 
that you could even be saved by even taking the mark. Um, you know, and 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 it, to me again, or I, I've heard, uh, you know, not to 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 pick on the Calvinists for lack of better words, but um, uh, you know, um, I've heard um, charismatic preachers saying you won't have to worry about the mark or the Antichrist because we'll be raptured. Uh, you know, um, out of here. So don't, you know, study eschatology at all. Uh, you know, don't worry. And and I'm like, that's a very dangerous doctrine because if that does not happen, now I'm not a pre-tribulation rapture believer. You know, if any, I have friends who are pre-tribulation rapture believers. And if they kind of put a caveat where if it, if we aren't raptured out, don't lose hope, Jesus will return. I don't have a problem. I think they're wrong, but I'll still call them a brother in Christ, obviously. Okay. But, you know, to not say that and to not be a watchman on the wall and prepare, you know, oneself, it's 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 very dangerous, in my opinion. So I think if you're in the amillennial or premillennial camp, your view about the rapture is exceedingly important in terms of the timing of the rapture. I think it at least I think it could be very important. Um it more so important than your view of the millennium. If you're in the view, if you're in the amillennial camp or the premillennial camp, if you're in the postmillennial camp or the preterism camp, I think you're, I think your views are very dangerous to be honest. And that's a bit of a segue to one of the following questions. If y'all wanted to go there. Uh, yeah, I, uh, yeah. Um, but we don't have what? to. No, no, we we can real quick. Um, do you got something to say real quick, Jeremy? Yeah, I just real quickly, real quickly, since we talked about it just a little bit. Um, you know, it says that uh, what verse is it? Second Timothy two four talks about um, the Antichrist. Who it says who opposes and exalts himself above every so called god or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God, right? And I know that a lot of Christians, because they don't believe in the building of a third temple, but they believe that we, the body of Christ, are the third temple, you know, that the, that literally Satan will be dwelling inside of us, which doesn't make any sense to me, unless they're related to, like, the great apostasy or something like that. I don't know. I don't really get their logic on that, because a lot of them don't believe in the building of a third temple, that it's not going to happen at all. You know what I mean? So what would you what would you say to that? Because yeah. to me, it sounds like the Antichrist will be standing in a literal third temple. Absolutely. So there there's um, a problem with Satan's lack of being omnipresent. He's not God, so he can't be in multiple places at once. Yep. So Kate, Satan himself can't be in a person and in um, a different location. Okay, he has to be at one place at once. Now, if he's indwelling the Antichrist, he could be in, in the Antichrist who is standing in the temple of God. So that would be an exception, okay, in a building called the temple of God. Yeah. But I do think there's room uh, for, and this is, a, this, this is not some, a hill I'm willing to die on, but um, Hippolytus talks about how the Antichrist wants to, Satan wants to be like God in all things. And of course, there's biblical precedent for that, like Isaiah 14 stuff. Okay. 
uh, if you're thinking like the king of Babylon saying that he wants to be like the most high, that kind of an idea. Okay. Um, so Satan wants to be like God. He wants to be worshiped. He wants to be the king of the world, all this kind of stuff. Well, one of the things that Hippolytus says is that God gave a seal to his believers and the Antichrist will give one in like manner, which is interesting. Okay. So the, I, do, I don't think Satan is going to be able to replicate himself, but I think there's room for some type of genetic thing to where whatever this mark is, you are taking in yourself some aspect of the DNA of either Satan or the Antichrist. You think back to Genesis 6, these angels were able to give their DNA to people, okay? Through, through copulation, obviously. They were able to pass on some of their genetic material in some kind of way, and that's why they were monstrosities. I don't know how all of that stuff works, but they Reminds me of the Nimrod, too. Right? So they were capable of changing people's DNA and passing on DNA. And I think that's basically what's going to go on. So it's not a literal, like, him sitting in the temple kind of thing in terms of the believer's body. But I do think, in a sense, he is, because just like, now this this can maybe sound kind of weird, and I think the Holy Spirit is kind of like, in, in one sense, the DNA of Jesus, like the Spirit of Jesus. And eventually, right now, right now, in a temporal aspect, it's changing our character. It's supposed to be the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Yes. I think the resurrection, when the resurrection happens, we get our glorified, transformed body. I think that's more of the physical stuff because we have a body in, in the same manner as his own, right? So we look like him in some kind of way. I think that's like a DNA type of thing. I don't, I don't really know how to explain that. But right. um, I think the Antichrist, or Satan rather, is going to try to do something very similar to where he has children of his own. God wants all these children. Satan wants children too that are his progeny that look like him in one sense or act like him. Now, in order for that to happen, though, you, you either need to not be loyal first to Yahweh or you need to renounce your loyalty to Yahweh. And then you would be an empty vessel. So I don't think an I don't think a Christian can be possessed by the devil or possessed by an evil spirit. No. But if you renounce Jesus, I think you can like Hebrews talks about throwing away your I mean, this is getting into one saved, always saved thing. But I'm just getting I'll just, just very quickly, I think you can throw it away. Um like a marriage, I think you can divorce. There are lots of analogies that you can give. Like an apostion is a certificate of an apostasy, okay? It's a legal document showing that you have renounced something, that you have left something, okay? And right now, I think that we're in a, an engagement stage. We're not in a marriage stage with that's Jesus. Interesting. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. I like that. I like that a lot. I agree with you, too, yeah. I would disagree, but that'll be for another for a few. Yeah, days. yeah, we we can get in, but like betrothal language, right? Betrothal, it, it's either used. It can be used as an engagement, or it can be used as marriage, like a betrothed. I mean, like husband and wife. Mary was G was Joseph's husband. Oh, was Mary? Sorry, 
Mary was Joseph's wife, even when they were betrothed, but they weren't technically married yet. That's why he could put her away and give her a certificate of divorce. That's the first time that word divorce is used in the Bible. It's when they were engaged. So it's interesting. I would go back um, to Malachi about what God said about divorce, though. Just absolutely. Thinking. And so then I would go to Jesus about the only, in Matthew 19, the only reason for divorce Adultery. is marital unfaithfulness. So yeah. if you're like seeking another lover or no lover at all, just like atheism, I would say, yeah. or changing your religion, I think that's that's grounds. So saying, I do not want Jesus at all. I do not believe that he is Lord. I do not believe that, you know, if you're going through all that stuff, I hope no one uses that as a soundbite to say that's what Phil believes. But, that's not uh, what Phil believes. We go ahead and yeah, say that now. Okay. So. <laughs> right. But, you know, I think if some, someone can do that, I think, I think someone can do that. I think it's very, very rare, but, and I think it's a slow process, but I think it's possible. And I think it happens at a at a large level in the end, in the end times. I really oh, hope said, I really hope I'm wrong. I do. I would argue. I would believe it was people who thought they were, but never were truly born again. They never truly got. But again, that would be another discussion for another time on uh, uh, the once saved, saved always saved. Uh, a uh, discussion that hopefully Phil will make it where we've teased that on by their fruits for I don't know how long. We just haven't had to talk oh, forever. For sure. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if, if y'all want to do that, it's cool. You know, as long Heck as yeah. as long as the cops aren't called and Greg Lott is oh, the no. moderator. No, 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 no. <laughs> no, no not at all. Ta no, it'll be, it'll be very chairs, simple. Boys. Yeah. Uh, yes, table ladders and chairs go back to wrestling. <laughs> Uh, uh, so I, I guess in, in closing uh, real quick, um, Phil, is What's your belief as far as eschatology and whether that we should break fellowship with fellow brothers and sisters or if people are, uh, you know, um, if if they are brothers and sisters based off of their eschatological beliefs? Because, uh, you know, Jeremy and I talked about the last podcast, the only people that I'm willing to break you know, fellowship with to say that they're unbelievers is someone who's a full preterist who believes that we're living on the new heaven and we're living in the new earth right now, that Jesus Christ has already come. And to me, that snuffs the blessed hope of Jesus Christ's second coming. And I don't see how anybody born again could possibly believe that that's already happened. Um, but as far as all mill or post mill, um, you know, I, 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 I will fellowship, you know, I have friends who are all mill. Um, I just disagree with them. Uh, and I do think that post-mill and current Christian nationalism or Seven Mountains Dominion theology could be quite dangerous. Um, and you also see with Tartaria, which is a whole, you know, a previous show that we did back on By Their Fruits, right? You have uh, Tartaria, you know, uh, wearing its ugly head that that was the millennial kingdom. And now, since we've gone through that, you know, we're living in the time where Satan is loosed, right? Yeah, little season. Yeah. Yep. And so, um, you know, I, I wouldn't break someone fellowship with someone who believes that, but I would be kind of like, I think you're grossly in error as a, as a millennialist, but, but where do you stand? I guess, you know, is the final question on that. Yeah, man. I, you know, I think I would need, I would want to talk to them face to face and ask a whole lot of questions to see how nuanced their position is, because it's real easy to just set up. This is what I think Amil means. And I think, especially if you're talking to someone that's very thoughtful and that's, you know, uh, serious about the scriptures, you're going to find some nuance, right? And you're probably going to find some things that they're strong about and things that they're 
eh, I don't know about, you know, that kind of a thing. So really focus on the things that they're strong about or the things that they're strong about a denial of the gospel. You know, ask a, there's a guy named Greg Kokel, um, who's an apologist. He has a book called Tactics. I'd really uh, encourage you to check that book out. It's phenomenal. A lot of it um, revolves around something called the Colombo approach toward um, apologetics, and it it involves asking, asking questions. What do you mean by that? Yep. Because a lot of times people haven't thought through what they're actually saying. And sometimes the more they actually articulate what they think they believe, they might change their mind. They right. may realize, or they may realize that what is coming out of their mouth is not good, you know? So they haven't yep. really thought through it, right? Um, so asking, what do you mean by that? Continue to ask more and more questions. Now, if we're talking about a full preterist, and if we define full preterism with with the idea that Jesus has already returned, I think that person definitely has no hope, according to Paul. Yep. In 1 Corinthians 15, they have no hope. Um, so I don't know how that person could be considered a Christian. If they're because we're Peter says in First Peter 1 13 that we're supposed to set our hope fully on the grace to be given to us at the appearing of Jesus. Amen. So, like, yeah. Amen. like, what do you do with someone like that? It's a meaningless religion, then. It Christianity is meaningless, really. Because this is if, the best. This if, is a new. This is a new heaven. This is this is a new earth. This is the best yeah. it gets. The best. Yeah, this is so, the best it gets. Now, now let's get into post mill. Post mill. I would think, and and again, I'm try. I don't want a straw straw man, but like, we would have to already be in the millennium right now for most post millenniums, uh, post millennial believers. Um, I would imagine because Jesus hasn't come back yet, and so. The millennium had to have started at some point. Now, well, some I, I of hope... them believe we're out. We're out of the millennium. That millennium that we're in the little season too. Right, and so okay, okay. So then I would have to say, how did you see the world getting more godly during the millennial reign, and how did you define uh, the conditions of the earth during the millennial reign? What are you using to define that? Are you using Most Isaiah sixty five? The, the giant churches that are built. They usually say that the architecture kind of, you know, I've heard Calvinist post-millennials say this, crazy enough, uh, and I've seen um, uh, um, Catholic post-millennials um, say this, where they're where they're saying, um, they're kind of saying that that was the millennial kingdom were these giant structures that man built, and that's a testament to things getting better. So fidelity, like predominant, predominantly speaking, fidelity to Jesus worldwide doesn't have to do anything with the millennial reign. No, nah, not to them. To them, yeah. it's, it, they always go to the carnality or to the right. carnal, uh, which post-millennialism is a very carnal doctrine because as, as we know, things are getting worse. They're not getting better. Now they claim that it ebbs and flows and there's times where it gets bad and there's times where it progressively gets better. Okay, I understand all that. I've listened to numerous post-millennialists discuss in the different 
eschatological beliefs within the, within the post-millennial camp. Um, but um, they believe that many, I guess the full post-millennialists that we are in the little season, they believe it's Satan's deception um, because we there was once the millennial kingdom was once here and those giant churches and all the iconography in them and all of the you know, kind of like the craftsmanship was proof that the, you know, that, that, that the gospel, you know, the, 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 the was, was preached to all the world and that, you know, that, that, that Jesus Christ was ruling or reigning and the saints were ruling or reigning with him and kind of like these churches. Yeah. So I would really want to know when they really think the, the literal thousand years began, because most post-millennials believe in a literal thousand years. I guess some wouldn't have to, but then that would kind of fall into an all-millennial camp. So if it's a literal thousand years, when did it begin? How did you know that it began then? Like, what are you leaning on? Did you see the world getting better? The main the main problem I have with post-millennialism I have many problems with it. The main is the heavy reliance upon government mm -hmm. to achieve the mission because you have to uh, rely on the governments. And m looking back throughout history, what happens to countries when Christian theocracies are set up? Right. Over time, those countries generally become post-Christian. Yeah. And born-again Christians, true born-again Christians get persecuted. Yeah. Usually. Right. Yeah. So that doesn't seem like millennial reign stuff. But yeah, um, yeah, I, I always look to question the character of like kind of like what you said, like what is the scriptures described in millennial reign? What are the characteristics of that? You know what I mean? Like, what is it supposed to be like? Um, you know, Christ is supposed to be dwelling here with us, literally. You know what I mean? And like all these different things. And I think that if you press upon them enough to show try to get them to show you where in history that you can you can prove that christ came back you can prove that we that there are characteristics of the millennial kingdom at all like they can't they usually fall back to the fact that history is covered up it's a lie the government's been lying to us the whole time the architecture always architecture always the churches always it, man's hands it, it, it just crazy. falls back in the stupid tartaria thing to be honest mm -hmm. with you it's like it does <laughs> bothers with, me <laughs> with amillennialism you know I, i've developed a lot more affection for amillennialists um, over the last maybe three months, um, particularly the more I've gotten into the latter chapters of Zechariah with my small group, um, because we have some all millennials in there, uh, and, and there's like different variations of it, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but like all eschatologies, it has holes and, um, like, what does it mean that we are in the reign of Jesus right now? How do you define that? Because that's what an amillennial usually would say, that we are reigning with Jesus. Where is Jesus? I mean, like, I... In our don't... hearts. That's well, yes. And, a lot and that's okay. I know, I know. Because, right. because a lot of early Christians talk like that. Right. If you if you look at amillennial uh, theology concerning the, um, the commands that we're supposed to live out, mm -hmm. that's how early Christians talked. Like if you read Greg Beal's 
book in uh sorry his commentary on first and second thessalonians he's talking about how the thessalonians are living out the kingdom of god values like the values of the kingdom of god like they're trying to live out the sermon on the mount that's how beale is talking beale is a reformed calvinist you know believer okay, but as so, you discussed in your book though the early church overwhelmingly is pre-mill pre they're pre-mill and pre-trib but mm -hmm. they talk like a lot of careful amillennialists in terms of how we live out the ethics of the kingdom, which is interesting. So if you, if you met like an early Christian and you didn't talk about like, when is Jesus supposed to come back? Like if you didn't get into eschatology, but you just talked about how you're supposed to live out the ethics, you might think they're amill. Right. Okay. Which is interesting, but there are holes in that. Also, how do you define, um, satan being bound from deceiving the nations yeah that's always a tough one for me because like in beale's commentary on revelation so the the short the short commentary on revelation from beale is over 900 pages wow then he has the long one which is Jesus. well over a grand you know so he cannot really define what that means and i don't see any ah mills defining that well Never and at least anybody. for me in a satisfactory way because yeah. when you look at what satan is doing right now if you use just passages in the new testament post uh, ascension passages and you look at the activity of satan post ascension of jesus it sure looks like he's deceiving both believers and unbelievers quite a bit right. so the right. the best the best explanation of that came from one of the teachers in my small group um, who's also like, I don't know, but maybe he's talked, Paul is, or sorry, John is talking in Revelation 20. He's bound from doing his full on deception. Which that's what I've Paul heard that would get into too, in Second yeah. Thessalonians 2, like yeah. the final, final deception that that's what he's bound from. And I'm like, Okay. I you know that that's okay with me, but it's still not great. That's right. the way I look at it. Like, but you know, so I have a lot of problems with premillennialism now. Just to be honest, I've got a lot of problems with it. Um if if you're weaving in Old Testament passages from Zechariah and Isaiah about what the millennial reign is supposed to be like. Now you can turn those into um, metaphor and stuff, but like in Zechariah, if these Gentiles um, who survived the Armageddon War um, don't come up and sacrifice every year, they're practicing the Feast of Sukkot, right? Well, that involves burnt offerings. If they don't sacrifice, they're going to get a curse on their land. But Zechariah is also saying there's no curse. Now, you have a lot of Revelation 20 and 21, sorry, 21 and 22 talk, new heavens and new earth in Zechariah 14. But as far as the sacrifice, though, I heard that it'll be, there'll be sacrifices done within the millennial kingdom, but they will be, they'll be honorary. They won't be, um, they won't be for redemption, obviously, is usually how I've heard to look at it is it'll be some sort of remembrance of a, of a previous time. Right. But we don't get that from the Bible. We would get that from someone's opinion. 
True. See what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, yeah. And, and, and I can, I can vibe with that if that's how it goes down, but that's not what the Bible says. True. Right. Right. And so like, and, and of course the presupposition is we're bringing Zachariah's description into this, but also like, um, let's do Gog and Magog war. And I've got to go really soon. And I'm sorry to do this, okay. but like, if you read the description of the Gog and Magog war in Ezekiel, there are more correlations in Revelation 16 and Revelation 19 to Gog and Magog than there are in Revelation 20. Revelation 20's description of the destruction of God's enemies actually doesn't look at all like the destruction in Ezekiel. Fire coming down from heaven, that's not what it looks like in Ezekiel. But right. if you look at what happens in the Gog and Magog war, there are a lot of correlations in uh, the description of um, the bowls of wrath, the latter bowls of wrath, in Revelation 16, and also in Revelation 19, when Jesus returns. So that's like, okay, when is Gog and Magog? Because Revelation 20 has it after the thousand years. But it's tough, man. It's tough. That's why labels are hard, man. Everybody yeah. wants to fall into a category. But like yeah. me and John were discussing last time, like it's, we might put ourselves in that category, but we do not if you were to have like a checklist we wouldn't meet every single one of them it's it's because it's really hard it's just for the satisfaction of others when they ask you what you are i could be like well i guess i'm a historic historicist slash premillennialist like you know what i mean like even though i don't agree with every single one of them in there that that makes somebody like that but i guess that's the closest fit you know yeah it's, it's hard it's, it is it and, will you suck. know if <laughs> If it was like gun to gun to your head, you got to choose a side. I would go pre mill, uh, post trip or pre pre wrath, something like that. You know what I'm saying? Um, but for me, I where I am, I think it's more important for me to be prepared to go through the tribulation than to have the millennial reign thing completely figured out right. at this point in my life. Yeah, yeah, and. One lightning round question. Mystery Babylon. Who do you believe yeah. it is out of Jerusalem, the Vatican, or New York City? Cool. Slash America. Where where do you stand? Because it is a city, so I'm not going to say America of itself. And Vatican. Yeah. So so which one? Where do you stand? Just real quick. Lightning, lightning question. Give me a minute. Can I have a minute? Yeah, okay, I'll give you if a minute. I was going to do it over a minute, I think throughout time, Mystery Babylon is whatever kingdom satan has offered to his boy throughout time like luke 4 thing okay i have the power to give it to whoever i wish and so i think throughout time mystery babylon has changed physical locations but it's basically satan's kingdom and so i think at the very end of time the very very end of time i think it's going to be jerusalem I agree. i'd encourage all to check out uh chris white stuff yep. on mystery babylon it's yeah we're gonna have plastic dude but I mean, I think Revel I think you can prove that really easily with Revelation. Right. But like I think I think um there's room for Maitreya to be a type of Antichrist. I think there's room for um Donald Trump to be a type of Antichrist. Agreed, yes. Mm -hmm. But I don't think they're the final one. Because many will come in my name, claiming I am I am He. I think there are going to be several, the uh, Mahdi or whatever from Islam. Yep. I think there are going to be several along the way, 
and uh, they're not the final one. I think when you see the final one come and lay waste, particularly to the Islamic nations and anybody that comes against him, that's going to be your boy. Yeah. But I think he's in defense of who, right? In defense hmm? of Israel, right? Or Jerusalem. Yes. I will because, say it's more likely because he's Trump than for, Obama. I will right. say that at least. That's more likely Trump than it's Obama. It's more likely to be Trump than Obama. I'll at least say that. Yeah, because he's aligned himself very heavily with the Jews. Right. And um and Kirshner. Jerry Kushner. You know. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So um yeah. But I don't think it's him. I don't think it's Trump. But I, I think he's think I think he could play. Be, but I'm not I, but I'm but I'm not saying for sure. I think he's on my he's on my short list. Sure. But there's a possibility he is not though. Um yeah. and I and Obama is not on my short list. And it might be somebody who we have no idea who's not on the scene right now. You know. Yeah. It wasn't Henry, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Finally passed away. But anyways, um before you go, I just cuz I heard you say it beforehand. So, and I think that you accidentally said this, but um just for a correction or, or clarification, the early church was pre-millennial and post-trib, right? Ba- basically. I mean, you basically, could say right. pre-trib, post. They think the easiest way to say it, they think there's going to be a literal thousand year reign for the most part, though there are people around, the, like Justin Martyr says that there are people that are living during his time that don't believe in a literal thousand year That's reign, true. but he doesn't get into yeah. specifics. Okay. But then they also believe that they're going to see the Antichrist. They're going to live through his reign and they will only be taken up to meet the Lord in the air when the Lord returns. So the l- return of Jesus is when they are gathered to him. Hmm. Yeah, I guess you could go either way with that one, huh? Like, because a lot of people interpret them as, uh, well, they'll they'll try to interpret as that the early Christian was pre-trib. And I, I don't see no that they were pre-trib at all. No chance. I don't either. Yeah, know. like. At all. They clearly think that we're going to go through the tribulation and be persecuted. People like Thomas Ice are taking the early Christian quotes completely out of context. Out of I mean, context, they are cherry yeah. picking like crazy. Yeah. Yeah. They'll do that too with just, uh, it's off topic, but they'll do that with things with Mary reverence as well. Like Catholics, I've seen yeah. Orthodox and Orthodox, Catholics do that. Yep. Yeah. yeah. They'll, they'll take the early Christians and say, see, they reverenced her like we do. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> No, nope. no, they didn't. No, no. Hey, whenever y'all want to do that discussion on uh, OSAS, I'm down. As long as it's good awesome. for discussion, it yeah. will. Yeah, it will. we got to get good with people. All yeah. right, appreciate all right, brother. Y'all. Do you want to tell? Yeah, appreciate you too, man. You before you won't go, do you want to just tell everybody where they can find your stuff? Real yes, quick? of course. Yeah, just philsbaker.com. The podcast is reclaiming the faith. Go check out buy their fruits. And purchase the third abominable temple. You can find it on Kindle. You can find it on on Audible, uh, as well too for people who love audiobooks such as myself. Um, glad to have you back on, uh, Phil. And hopefully we'll do it again real soon, brother. Sounds good, y'all. God bless y'all. God bless, God bless bro. everybody. Take care. All right. Uh, you got anything to say in closing, Jeremy? I'm good, man. I got to pee so bad, bro. <laughs> God bless everybody that's listening. Take care. Uh, until next time, which will be the fiftieth. It might be a little few weeks, but it'll be the fiftieth. Uh, the fiftieth show. So, so we're gonna get a whole bunch of people together, hopefully, and do a massive roundtable. So, God bless everybody's listening. If you don't hear us uh, beforehand, uh, have a merry Christmas and a happy New Year. All right. God bless. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to Buy Their Fruits. May the Lord bless the giver, the gift, and the receiver.